Well, if you haven't been welcomed enough, I'd also like to welcome and thank you for coming. My name's Michelle, and this is Stephen next to me. I'm always um, really struck at the beginning of this retreat at uh, the timing of the season, you know, the change from the hot day, and then we had fall come last night, and um, the way this retreat starts, it's like the, the forces of purity over one lifetime, never mind lifetimes, of all of us that come together. Uh, this particular group of people, this particular group of teachers, you know, it comes together, and it will never happen again in this way, in this time. There's this kind of mysterious force of karma that makes this happen, that allows it to happen, and it's very, very precious and very, very rare. So we undertake this deep spiritual journey together, and it's a kind of ceremony of purification. And I think it's wonderful that we get to begin this ceremony by working with each other and getting to know each other a bit and getting to know um, this land and building more. It's kind of a way of arriving here and making this your home, this physical home, a spiritual home away from your regular home. So hopefully you're getting a sense of gradually slowing down and gradually entering the world of silence for a long time, for six weeks or three months. This uh, summer, Stephen and I taught a weekend in Honolulu. And then, even though we'll teach a weekend, we have a regular Sunday sitting in the afternoon at 5 o'clock for an hour. And sometimes people will come once a month to the Sunday sitting, or every week, or every few months. Uh, some people might drop in once every five years. You know, it's a real <laughs> varied group that comes and goes in the Sunday sitting. And there's one man that's uh, from New York City that works in a hospital, and he's very, very busy, very, very busy, and he hardly ever gets time to come to the Sunday sitting. Uh, so we had this weekend, and most of the people uh, at this Sunday sitting had done this silent weekend. Uh, and then uh, he was one of the few people who hadn't done the weekend. So we sit, and then we take questions. And somebody asked this incredibly complicated question about deep stages of insight and consciousness and Nibbana, enlightenment. You know, the question was about a five-minute question. Uh, and he just started laughing. And he couldn't help himself. He, he interrupted us and he raised his hand and he said, you know, I don't even care what the answer is to this question. <laughs> I'm just so happy you all are talking about this. <laughs> and it was so, it's so refreshing whenever he talks because he gives us that perspective of, you know, not everybody in the world is doing this. You know, you might have noticed that not all of your friends and family 
<laughs> trotted along behind you to this retreat. It's a very unusual thing to do in our world. Uh, and the kind of questions that people will be asking here in the hall aren't usually what people are talking about at lunch, at work. Uh, and we tend to, at times, lose sight of this when we do a long retreat. You know, you will forget uh, that <laughs> anything exists other than IMS, which sometimes is very hard, uh, but sometimes it's wonderful. One of my favorite things that the Buddha said was one of his last um, phrases or words, and I'll probably talk more about this as the retreat goes on, but he, he said just before he died, make of yourself a light, make of yourself an island, make of yourself a refuge. And we'll be taking the time in this retreat to create an outer refuge or sanctuary here at IMS. And we all participate in creating this outer sanctuary. It's a sacred space. And the path that we're on is called the path of purification. Uh, so that as we surrender to creating this outer refuge, what happens is that an inner refuge starts to develop inside of us. Uh, and as we do the practice, we develop this inner refuge more and more so that at times maybe we don't need so much the outer refuge, uh, but we can bring this inner refuge anywhere, wherever we go. Uh, and part of creating the outer refuge is tomorrow night um, committing to taking the refuges and precepts. And taking refuge or taking precepts are practices in and out of, in, in and of themselves. Uh, so Stephen will talk more about tomorrow night, the taking of the refuge, but very simply we start the retreat when we go into total silence uh, by taking refuge in the Buddha. And for some people that might mean understanding that we're committed to liberation or we're committed to freedom or awakening, or to developing wisdom, or compassion. And then very briefly, taking refuge in the Dharma is taking refuge in the truth, understanding that whenever we really connect deeply with the truth of things, uh, that <clears throat> it's that truth that does liberate us. And then taking refuge in Sangha, again very briefly, is really understanding the sanctuary or refuge that comes from practicing together. It originally meant the community of monks and nuns and then lay people that practice together. Uh, it's really all beings who are committed to the truth and freedom and to understand that connecting with those beings is a refuge. 
I think that I've seen how my own understanding of, of taking refuge has changed and deepened over the years. And we understand that each person's relationship to this will be very unique and different. Um, but I think that beginning a retreat, beginning going into total silence, um, is a very beautiful way of marking like lighting a candle. It's marking the time when we do uh, create that refuge together, that outer refuge together. On another level, um, we have to ask, well, what is it that uh, makes it possible for sacred space to happen? You know, how do we all individually participate in that? Uh, and I think there are four ways or commitments that this happens. And the first is the commitment to the silence, which I'm <laughs> intending to try to talk mostly about tonight. And then committing to non-harming or taking uh, the precepts is another aspect of this uh, creating a refuge together. Uh, tomorrow night, Steve will talk about committing to concentration or samadhi and committing to panya or committing to wisdom or understanding. So these four things, um, silence, sila, or uh, taking the precepts or non-harming, uh, concentration, and then developing wise attention. That's how we all commit and participate in creating this um, refuge or sanctuary that's very rare in this world. So the first, uh, the silence, I know Sharon talked some about it last night, but I wanted to go into it a little bit more uh, because it's such um, a foundation. For me, it's what I miss most about leaving a retreat. Um, you know, there, there just is nothing like it. And there's nothing like walking into a hall like this and just feeling <laughs> everyone kind of settle down and go deep inside. It's wonderful. And to be committed to that um, is really giving a gift to each other in terms of knowing that no one's going to interrupt you. That no matter what's happening for you, if you're happy, if you're really sad, if you're really angry, um, if you're having the most wonderful spiritual experience in your life, whatever it is, that you know that no one's going to come up to you and talk to you. Um, where in our life do we get that kind of generosity? And I would like to ask you to keep remembering that even if you want to talk, <laughs> the other person probably doesn't. You know, that it, it is a great intrusion. It's breaking silence to actually physically talk with someone else here. Of course, on the surface, we start to see that it's wonderful to let go of our own wonderful personality, <laughs> uh, however our personality manifests, we get to see our personality most clearly when we engage in talking. So to be able to let go of that is the great relief 
of the silence. And it also uh, makes it possible for concentration to develop. Uh, But there's a lot more to silence than just not talking. And I I wanted to go into this tonight because it's a great opportunity uh, before we actually uh, start in with the silence totally to talk about it. Uh, So communication can become very, very subtle, especially on a long retreat. Uh, And silence means truly letting each other be. So that includes making as little eye contact as possible. Uh, And you'll find as the retreat goes on, there might be people that you might, you know, it's almost like we peep. that a word, peep. We, we look up and kind of peep at people. <laughs> and that's still a kind of communication, but it's very little. And sometimes it's a kind of metta or loving kindness that kind of gives us the inspiration to keep going. Uh, there's a fine line in that. And I think it's good to do sometimes at the beginning of the retreat, uh, but to be aware that we're doing it. That to be aware that there's a kind of loving kindness and nourishment that comes from that, but to maybe gradually even renounce that. It, it is a kind of form of um, breaking silence. Uh, the, the more gross forms of breaking silence, of course, are writing and reading. Um, uh, but if you look at silence very closely, it's a kind of seclusion. I was um, teaching a three-week retreat uh, with Steve in Italy before coming here. And I think for that culture, it's probably much harder than in our culture to keep the silence. I mean, it it was so (laughs) amazing. It took us a week to get everyone to stop talking. I mean, (laughs) even, you know, in the hallways, you know, just... You know, just if they would just go off to the side and talk, I would have been happy. But, you know, it was just uh, culturally <laughs> such a big uh, shift. So at least we don't have to struggle with that. Um, you can see that we have a little more ease um, in our culture with letting it go. Uh, but then when we look at, say, male, or letter writing. Uh, When I first practiced here, or did a long retreat in 1975, it was unthinkable to send a letter. It was unthinkable to receive a letter. And it it was unthinkable to make a phone call. In fact, it was only in dire emergencies that that kind of communication would happen. And even in the early years here, when I was cooking or sitting, it was only in incredible emergencies that letter writing or phones were used. And I thought about when I was going to talk tonight about silence of the last few years of teaching this retreat, because I've taught this retreat for a lot of years, of the change in the culture here around the three-month retreat. And how much mail I saw, even last year, how much mail people were getting. And then people, it's like there'd be a whole stack of mail somebody might have and walk through the dining room. And I kept thinking, boy, what is is that like for somebody who's trying not to get letters? It must be really hard sometimes to watch somebody go with their briefcase 
you know, of letters back to their room. Or some people weren't even um, bringing their letters back to their rooms. They were reading them in the foyers. And it felt like, well, what happened? You know, what, why, why has there been such a big change? You know, so I'd like to ask you to really look at that and see, you know, for some of you, it might be um, easy and maybe you're new and you don't know what I'm talking about. But if you're an old yogi, you know what I'm talking about. You know, it's unbelievable the change that I've seen happen in, in phone calling and letter writing. And maybe it's time to look at that. You know, what... What is it in us that has changed so radically? Are we, as teachers, getting too loose? You know, I have to ask myself, am I making a mistake by not telling the office to not allow this? You know, let's not have that box in the office, and let's stop this. Unless the letter says emergency, or the phone is an emergency, let's stop it. Um, But that's not my style. I tend, I mean, and I think all of us tend to be much looser than that, Um, but that if we're looser, it means that you have the responsibility to really see, is this necessary? Um, And the more you do it, the less you notice the effect. And the less you do it, the more you notice the effect. And this is like this with everything, especially in taking the precepts. You know, if we kill, the more we kill, the easier it is to kill. And the less we kill, the harder it is to kill. And it's the same with all of them, with hurting people with our speech, with stealing, with sexual misconduct and alcohol and drugs. It's like we see it with everything, and it's all around renunciation. Um, and understanding what seclusion really is and why. Uh, so then I started thinking, well, maybe we don't really talk about so much or enough. You know, why, why would we do that? And maybe we don't talk so much about concentration and how it can be so easily disturbed. Um, I was uh, sitting for... for about a month down at the study center, the second half of the three-month retreat last year. Um, And I hadn't had the opportunity to do a long retreat for, it seemed like, a long time. And I was so grateful uh, to get to practice. Uh, And I noticed how um, easily concentration gets disturbed. You know, it's just... I had forgotten, because I hadn't done a long retreat for so long, um, just how delicate the deeper places and practice are, and how wonderful it is to get the chance to be secluded. You know, so I'm not trying to come down with a heavy fist, but I do notice (laughs) that we could shape up a little more during these retreats. It's gotten a bit much um, around this kind of stuff. One suggestion I have is if you are intending to write letters and you're hearing this and that maybe it's kind of, you're thinking, well, maybe I I won't. 
I used to write postcards and birthday cards and everything beforehand. And then I would mail it, you know, it would be like November 3rd and it would be somebody I knew, you know, my sister's birthday or something. It would all be already be written and I would send it. So that's a, just a suggestion that if you do have that kind of communication to do and you want to do it, that's what these first few days of this retreat are for, which probably Sharon already mentioned, is to finish up stuff like that. Um, it's such a relief not to do it. The other uh, thing that I wanted to bring up in relationship to silence um, is leaving, <coughs> leaving each other notes. And this has been, uh, again, in teaching this particular retreat because it seems to happen only on long retreats uh, to the extent that it has happened that I've seen here, um, is especially when people are angry at someone else and they write an anonymous note and, and, you know, maybe if, again, if you're new, you might not know the extent of how this can happen. Uh, but it's one of the most painful things that I've seen here. And, and it just isn't necessary. And it, it's been really painful for me as a teacher to, to sit through interviews and have people come in and be in tears and have gotten an anonymous note on their cushion. And it's usually like very flowery, you know, dear so-and-so. And the tone is so angry, and it's always signed with meta. You know, it's like, <laughs> I've seen hundreds of these. It's always, you know, it's always the anger is all cushioned because the person doesn't realize what they're doing. You know, they feel right, and they feel like they're writing this thing, and somebody might be you're going to get very quiet and somebody next to you might be sneezing all day. You know, or maybe you just came in and closed the window and somebody comes in and opens it day after day after day after day. Now on a 10-day retreat or a two-week retreat, we can usually manage not to do anything. But on a three-month retreat, we're getting like family. You know, this is like your brother, your younger brother just opened the window for the 200th time. You know, and you really forget that we're in silence and we forget that um, we're not supposed to do that kind of communication. Uh, and it's amazing. I mean, you know, usually there's window wars. Window wars are usually the favorite wars, you know, but... For years here, you know the bowling alley downstairs? Um, well, I don't know what it's like now, actually, if there's a, a something that filters the light or if it's just a bare light bulb. But over the years, people would go down and do walking down there. Um, and some people would want the light on, and some people would want the light off. You know, and again, a 10-day retreat, Usually we have some space with this kind of stuff, but a month into the retreat, six weeks in, and people would go down to walk, and some people would turn it off, some people would turn it on, on, off, on, on. And then, I think this was very creative, but people started taking the light bulb. <laughs> and then maintenance would put another light bulb in. And then it would disappear again, and then again, and again, and again. And, um, 
<laughs> we're laughing now, <laughs> but, but <laughs> there is going to be something like that that happens during the retreat, and it, it's really mind-boggling how, you know, we can start to see how wars start in the world. Because we all know that when you look at any place in the world and you look at a horrendous war, that if you go back to the source, it's usually really stupid. You know, it's really that there's just been a build-up and a build-up and a build-up and a build-up, and then sometimes you think it's over centuries of race wars, you know, where it's, it's just mind-boggling again that people kill each other and hurt each other over this stuff, but that's what we start to understand on this retreat. You know, the beauty of this long retreat, and it's why I love to teach it, even though it's a, it's a marathon for all of us, is that we come to understand the roots of violence at this retreat on such a profound and deep level. And you might be one of the people that leave the note. You know, you might find yourself doing it and then have so much remorse after when you come out of it 24 hours later. You know, so the reason I'm kind of doing this long an explanation about this is to try to remember this, what I'm saying, when you're in that state and come to a teacher. I mean, we always have this rule among ourselves over the years, always wait 24 hours before you write a note. And really, if you wait 24 hours, usually by the end of 24 hours, at least the intensity of the anger is over. Um, and you probably can wait to an interview to talk about it. And there are some things you might have to talk about. I'm not saying that you have to blindly accept and be passive with everything that happens. There are some things that happen that you might want to change and that might need to change. In fact, I think I have time to tell a story about this. Um, I had a, a yogi once that was coming in for an interview and he started to talk about how much his room smelled. Um, and I was like, yeah, you know, just note smelling, <laughs> smelling, smelling. And then he came in, it's like, you know, my room really smells. And I said, well, why don't you, you know, open the window? And, you know, uh, and it just got worse and worse. And um, he thought his roommate was farting. And, you know, just we were trying to figure out, like, what's the source of the smell? It's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Um, and it, he came in, it was maybe two weeks in, and I wish now that I had acted sooner, <laughs> because it was getting really bad, and he started crying, and he's like, I just can't stand the smell anymore. And I thought, oh, you know, what are we going to do? You know, and all the rooms were full, and so I, I just suggested finally that he sleep in the in the then library, which was downstairs where the office is now, just because I didn't know what to do. Um, and something happened with his roommate. I think someone had died in the family and he had to leave. Um, and he came in, this yogi came in for an interview and he was just totally happy, you know, and it's like something had really changed. And I said, well, did you ever figure out what the smell was? And he said, yeah. And I said, what was it? And he said, you know, my roommate had all this salami in the closet. 
you know, and it was rotting, and it was it was just meat. It was meat decaying in the closet, which was a smell, you know. And that's, you know, we don't really expect you to, you know, to sit through these kind of things. You know, those are the kind of things that, you know, you really do want to change. <laughs> you know, so, so the, I'm I'm trying to give an example of something where, um, of course, there are situations here where you will need to talk to a teacher. You will need to come up with a solution. And equanimity, developing wisdom and equanimity, doesn't necessarily mean being passive. But I do ask you not to leave each other angry notes. You know, because there's nothing more painful than being in silence for six weeks or a month and coming to your seat and getting an angry note signed metta, because then you don't know if you're going to get another one and another one. And it just really ruins the sense of trust um, and seclusion. Uh, so really try to remember this if, if there's something upsetting you. And come, you know, <laughs> talk to a staff person if, if you can't find a teacher, but really leave each other alone. In some ways, IMS is a kind of luxury hotel in compared to, um, if you compare our lives to a lot of lives, just regular lives in this world. It's like our renunciation in the United States <laughs> is so cushy compared to most people's actual lives in this world. Um, and it's, I think, important to remember as we come in and we are giving up a lot. You know, it's true. You know, we let go of a lot of doing, we let go of a lot of our routines, we let go of our, our, our food lifestyle, we let go of our entertainment, we let go of so much. But still to remember uh, that this place, you know, Upandita, a teacher from Burma, called it a Brahma world in comparison to life in Burma. You know, that it's so luxurious. Uh, so that we know that we're giving up our preferences, but still the staff really work hard at making this place comfortable. Uh, and they try to meet people's food needs. And, and it's, an, it's such a great place to practice. When I practiced here last uh, fall, I, was so, I felt so cared for. Uh, and it makes it easier to go deep inside. Um, so one aspect of, of taking refuge and creating refuge is renunciation. And renunciation is letting go of our comfort and preferences. Uh, and renunciation is a word in the West that brings up a lot for us because I think we think that it means we should do something, or we have to do something, or that we're depriving ourselves of something. Uh, and in this, in this, these cases when renunciation feels like deprivation, it's really not coming out of our own understanding of um, what it really means. Uh, 
So at times during the retreat it might be difficult to understand why we commit to not harming the precepts or why we let go of communication on the, on, in the depths of how I'm suggesting it, um, why we don't write or read, all of these things. Uh, what we're doing is we're conserving energy. And we'll remind you of this a lot during the retreat, that the renunciation actually has a purpose, which is uh, to bring about a simplicity of life so that our energy, instead of going into doing, it goes into seeing more clearly. You know, all of the energy is going into developing more wisdom and hopefully more compassion in our life. Uh, So that's why... (laughs) You know, we live such a life here, and that's why we let go of, of so much that might be more comfortable. I went to um, Ireland for nine days as my own pilgrimage on my way back here. Uh, and one of the things I was interested in is in, you know, very early, the early saints. And there's an island off of um, the west coast of Ireland called the Island of the Saints that I've always wanted to go to. Uh, And it's just amazing to me to see in an age where there were no um, gasoline motors that these people went to these islands and built these rock huts that were certainly, we wouldn't, probably none of us... (laughs) would survive a, a winter in Ireland in one of these uh, huts. You know, it, just the weather alone, never mind what, what were they eating. Uh, uh, and the, there is still such a presence there of prayer it's, and silence. It's like it's blooming with it after so many years. And the people who live there, they talk about these beings like they're still there. It's, it, the energy is still so palpable where they were living. Um, and and to, it was so inspiring to me that they would make that effort in terms of renunciation. And then I walk into this hall and I see, yeah, you know, we're, we're doing the same thing here, right now. You know, we've made this incredible effort to get here. We're all making this commitment to give up so much of our lives to be here. And why? You know, it's such a great thing to commit to. And like my, uh, our friend who at, in Honolulu, who was so happy that we were talking about liberation that he didn't care about our answers. (laughs) He was just happy we were talking about it. So making ourselves a light or making ourselves a refuge is really being able to give up our preferences and let the energy going in, let the energy go into, going into unknown territory for ourselves. Because if we're really growing in this practice, this retreat will be a stepping kind of over the cliff into the unknown. 
And there'll be times where you're going to feel like talking, where you're going to want to read, where you're going to eat too much, you know, where you're going to make eye contact because you're not going to be comfortable with the buildup of energy and going into the unknown territory. That's all part of the, the, the trip we're on, or the journey we're on, is watching ourselves build up the energy and then get afraid. You know, and if you're not afraid, something's wrong. You know, whenever I go into retreat, I feel this anxiety and fear. Uh, and I see now, as I've practiced many times, that it's normal. You'd be crazy if you thought this was going to be a piece of cake. I love it when people, you know, you tell them when you're going to go on retreat and they say, oh, have a nice vacation. <laughs> and you know, you, you want to tell them, no, no, it's not a vacation. It's not fun. It's really hard and it's wonderful, but it's hard. Uh, so again, we'll talk about, during the retreat, we'll remind you of what we're doing because we forget. We forget that that's what the renunciation is for. We forget that we're building the energy. Uh, and there'll be times when you're doing walking meditation or sitting and you'll forget that you're here to develop wisdom and compassion. You know, it's all part of the journey. So renunciation doesn't mean deprivation. It just means simplicity. And we start to develop a wisdom around our life where we're not so motivated by need or attachment or aversion. And we start to see that we don't have to renounce true love or we don't have to renounce generosity. We don't have to renounce wisdom to be happy or peaceful human beings, you know, where we really do have our own wisdom and compassion that makes us a light in this world and brings light into this world. One last thing about renunciation is um, part of renunciation to me in a retreat is renouncing having to be perfect and having um, to be totally patient. <laughs> you know, it's like um, if we asked you to be mindful all day right now, it would be too much. So part of renunciation is being able to renounce the past and the future and only try to do it in a moment. You know, all this practice just happens each moment. And the more we understand renunciation, the lighter the practice gets. And there is an ease, ease with it, because we, we renounce that trying to be perfect all day. And we just see that if there's loneliness, that's what we get liberated through. And if there's a breath, that's what we get liberated through. And if there's fear, that's what we get liberated through. You know, so that each moment of our life here and in our life in general, you know, that whenever we meet it, the truth of that moment, with great care and mindfulness, the renunciation 
And the simplicity that we learn here is just that moment is enough. You know, that, that moment is what liberates us. And then the next moment is what liberates us. And that's all we have to do. This is a, a poem by an Australian man named Michael Lunick, and it's called The Prayer Tree. Uh, and it has a really nice ring to it in terms of simplicity uh, and renunciation. He said, when the heart is cut or cracked or broken, do not clutch it. Let the wound lie open. Let the wind from the good old sea blow in to bathe the wound with salt and let it sting. Let a stray dog lick it. Let a bird lean in the hole and sing a simple song like a tiny bell and let it ring. Let it go. Let it out. Let it all unravel. Let it be free and it can be a path on which to travel. <laughs> That's pretty simple. <laughs> uh, so this talk is about um, protection, refuge, sanctuary. So I encourage you to protect your practice, to protect your solitude, uh, and to protect each other's practice to really be committed to protect each other's solitude. Um, we all never know how quiet we get on a retreat until we leave. And in a long retreat, um, uh, that, that's true more than we ever know. So may we commit to the silence and this journey of awakening, of commit to the non-harming, with uh, joy in our hearts. May we create a refuge together, make of ourselves a light, make of ourselves a refuge. Let's sit for a minute.
I feel very grateful to be here with you. Thank you.